0: If you wanna be successful, I think that your path is gonna move faster and you're gonna be the one that gets those limited jobs if you're well-rounded. I would completely suggest considering different parts of the industry, different parts of operations just for your platform for the future.
1: Let's talk about the photos and the renderings that you use on your property website. Every prospective renter will tell you that your website's gallery, is gonna play a significant role in their decision to visit the property and inquire about leasing. If that's the case, those photos and video assets better be attractive. Did you know that 61% of students in southeastern states prefer a bedroom photo that has daylight coming from the window versus evening light? However, 69% of students in Midwestern states prefer evening light. Isn't that something you would like to know if you're building a website for a property in Tennessee versus Missouri? Here's another one. Were you aware that 78% of students that were recently surveyed prefer exterior building photos that are set in sunrise or sunset lighting versus midday lighting? I didn't realize that. But in a world where every property website is trying to attract as much interest as possible, don't you think that's some important data to consider? So how can you get your hands on this data? Well, those three data points I just mentioned are all from an annual report titled, Designing for the Future. The report is spearheaded by Euphorus VR and supported by several student housing companies like Asset Living, Cardinal Group, and Landmark Properties. Why is there so much support for this? because these companies want to make sure they are keeping their hands on the pulse of what students are thinking. Specifically with Euphorce, they spearhead this report because their graphic designers want to understand our customer even better than we do. It's one of the things that makes Euphorce so great at what they do. We've talked about Euphorce VR on the podcast before because of just how impressed I've been with their photorealistic renderings and how their process saved one of my development clients a ton of money by exposing design issues that were not caught in the review process with the architect. Their final product is so realistic that I've even had interior designers who looked at their rendering and could not distinguish the rendering apart from the post-construction photos. Also, when the pandemic broke out and we were trying to figure out how to offer VR tours, UFORIS stepped up and provided a very low cost option for existing properties who didn't have VR tours already to scan their properties and create them. They are a talented and a fantastic company and I'm proud to call them a sponsor of this podcast. If you are needing photo realistic renderings of an upcoming development or rehab, go to That's UFORIS.com. That's U-F-O-R-I-S dot At their website, you can also download a free copy of their 2023 Designing for the Future report. There's so much valuable insight in this report, so go get it even if you don't have an immediate need for renderings. Again, that's euforest.com. We'll also provide a link in the show notes. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Housing Insight podcast where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host Wesley Dees. I'm also the CEO of Student Housing Insight. If this is your first time catching our podcast, you know what? We're not just a podcast. Student Housing Insight is a platform for off-campus housing professionals to network, share ideas, data, And to overall just build a community for those of us who are passionate about this sector so to stay in the loop on all that we offer make sure you go to studenthousinginsight.com and you can see what we are up to we also host the industry's monthly webinar called shop talk Uh, to be notified when those webinars are taking place just go to shoptalk.info and click on the register for web meeting button that's on the home page All right, guys. So let's get into today's episode. We've got another installment of our Profiles in Student Housing series where I sit down with an industry veteran and dive into how they ended up building their career in student housing what challenges they see for the industry, and what advice they have for others who may be considering a career in student housing. Our guest for this episode is Jessica Nix. She is the Chief Marketing Officer for Campus Life and Style. CLS, at the end of December of 2022, was the 11th largest student housing manager in the U.S., with nearly 30,000 beds under management. And based on some of the news that I've seen since December, I'm sure they've certainly surpassed that number in the past five months. CLS has really kind of amazed me in the way that they were established and have just grown over the past eight years. We've had their CEO, Jim, shoulders on the From the Top episode that we did back in 2022. And we recently had their chief operating officer, Dan Shopey, on our Future of Student Housing episode that we did back in April. So, you know, after getting to know those guys, it was very evident that a lot of the DNA that makes up CLS's culture, it also comes from Jessica Nix. So as I kind of began understanding her background, I was very intrigued. We're basically the same age. I started college in 95. She started in 96. We both went to schools in the Southeast that were similar in size and saw a lot of off-campus student housing being introduced while we were there and shortly after graduation. And we've both stayed in this industry since college. How have we not worked together (laughs) at some point? Uh, We haven't even been part of a transaction from what I can recall. I mean, I've known Jessica's name for some time. I've always heard great things. Uh, Our paths just never crossed. So, at the beginning of this year, I added her to my list of people I wanted to do a profile interview with, and this month, we were able to make that happen. You know, one of the reasons I'm doing this profile series is I want to capture the history and the stories behind our industry. You can look at a list of the top 25 national operators who were in this business, say, 20 years ago. And other than a handful of companies, the names are just completely different. But those new companies have histories that are very intertwined with the folks who were part of those earlier companies. And when you start putting the timelines together and the actions taken, it's very revealing who the influencers and the leaders are who have shaped this industry into what it is today. And Jessica is certainly one of those people. So with that being said, let's get to my interview with Jessica Nix of Campus Life and Style. Jessica, thanks for joining the podcast.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, it's, you know, we were at Apartmental Laws earlier this month and had a chance to catch up with you. Both of us weren't attending departmental laws, but we were both in Atlanta <laughs> at the same time. And leading up to that, you and I had a couple of discussions, but your story is so interesting to me. And I just wanted to make sure that we had a chance to get it on the podcast at some point in time. So thanks so much for doing this.
0: No problem. I am a child of the industry from, you know, before college was out and I'm still doing it now. So this is, I am the product of student housing.
1: You yeah, know, I cannot figure out how both of us have been in it this long and we haven't worked as coworkers. We haven't, I'm sure we've probably been in the same market at the same time. Absolutely. Point, but how we have not ran into each other and worked with each other either on a transaction or actually as coworkers. I have no idea.
0: (laughs) I know. It's crazy. I think I truly believe this, that there's the six degrees of separation for anybody in this world, but not for student housing. It is a maximum of one degree of separation. If you don't know that person, you just haven't met them yet.
1: Yeah. They're somewhere. So incestuous. Well, hey, let's just really kind of start with your origin story. You know, where did you grow up? You're obviously in Atlanta now, but what's, what's that story and how did that really kind of intersect with your student housing journey?
0: Okay. My origin story. So, grew up in Metro Atlanta. Everybody says Atlanta, but not many people actually live in Atlanta. And <laughs> born and raised, I ended up going to Georgia Southern, three and a half hours away.
1: Middle not States too Park. close to
0: mom and dad, not too far, just right. And I was studying a degree in public relations. I I got my degree out there. My dorm roommate found, discovered this program with a university where she could get free rent if she was the ambassador for that Mm -hmm. property. And you can imagine back then, this is, you know, the late 1990s. It was the beginning, maybe not the exact beginning, but near the beginning where you're starting to have these you know, the boom of all these private developers coming in and and building off campus. And it gave the the university a peace of mind that somebody on that property was promoting homecoming and football games and basketball games and really making sure that the students had like a thorough collegiate experience. All that being said, all I heard was free rent. And I'm like, tell me about it. Tell me about it. So at that time, there was this new property being built, and it was just everything. Everybody's talking about it. It's this big multi-building property. It has a clubhouse. It even had tennis courts. I mean, who has tennis courts these days? But um, well, it was a big was deal.
1: You have to. You have
0: to. I know. Is ninety nine, ninety eight? So. I went through the program and I actually was selected, the university didn't pay me, but they had to select me to pass me off to then the property manager and then he or she could pick who they wanted. So I made it through the screening process and then I was lucky enough to be plucked out of the pile and I didn't start until move-in day in 1999, but that was me, that was me trying to get free rent. I worked my way through college, that was me just trying to get by. And then quickly thereafter, and the move in at that property is just a whole nother story. I mean, thank goodness it rained just to give us a breather from all the problems that were happening. I don't even think we had sighting on all of the buildings, but we're like, nope, we're moving you in. Um, But shortly thereafter, I was hired in addition to being the school ambassador is a leasing agent and then a leasing manager and then an assistant manager. And that all happened in about nine months. And then I was fortunate enough to go to corporate in Atlanta. So It was close to home. It wasn't exactly home, but I stayed in Georgia.
1: So that would have been with Place?
0: Yes, Place Properties. They were on a tear. Then Cecil Phillips, and we'll talk about him more, but he was an international attorney by trade. He had worked as an assistant to Governor Busby in Georgia, and he definitely could see that budgets were shrinking for the universities, and they were getting tighter, and yet you had this huge surge of the baby boomers children coming to college. He could see it, he could see it in the state of Georgia and it's really the catalyst for our success and what's happened in our industry. And he was able to get international funds or international investors and as a developer start building student housing primarily in the Southeast. So when they built Statesboro place which was the property I was hired at it was probably only his second or third year of that prototype And so once I kind of graduated out of Statesboro Place and I elevated up and I started helping marketing lease multiple properties, if you see one, you've seen them all, they're all identical. He's stamping them out. So yeah, yeah, Troy, Alabama. Murray, Kentucky, Martin, Tennessee, don't ever go to Martin, Tennessee. In many places in the Southeast, I think he had 12 or 13 properties, but that was my ride is going in the wild west of student housing and wherever we stamp these out, I would camp out and educate them on why they should pay more than what they pay living in their duplex or their trailer. Those were my direct competitors.
1: Yeah, we had so in my previous life part of my portfolio we had statesboro place we also had purchased in that same acquisition the place properties in clemson Mm murray kentucky and there was one more I, i was bowling green but i don't think it was yep we had bowling green i think kane anderson had it i think that's who we purchased it from but um yeah that and that property in statesboro is still striving today i mean it's well
0: it's interesting you know, we've been doing this for over 20 years. And so I, you know, call on my babies, but the babies that I opened up and they're, I mean, I'm really, I really feel like there's blood, sweat and tears to get these things open. Mm-hmm. Being the first in a market is not great. It doesn't mean that everybody flocks to it. They need to understand it. The price is different, but there's less liability. I mean, there's, actually, it's, there's tension in getting people educated to buy into it. But yeah. yeah, we were all over the Southeast and we were not primarily in flagship markets. That's another thing because yeah. the flagships were capping out. So all the opportunity and they they probably had housing or some housing. Yeah. And so we really chased after those second tier markets that did not have any in- infrastructure, excuse me. And so that's where we tried to build and take advantage of the kids that were coming in.
1: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about kind of that journey to going into the corporate position because you came up in this right at the same time that that I did. I graduated in 99. And so Mm -hmm. there was a lot that was happening while you and I were coming up in this industry. I was with, you know, a very small developer. They did maybe one or two projects a year and it was a merchant developer. So they just immediately sold it off once I had it stabilized but place for that point in time, it was one of the biggest in the, in the country. So what was that rise to that corporate position like?
0: Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I fit a need for sure. I, for so many of the years, I was always the youngest person in the room. And I just remember, you know, visually, I'm sitting in a boardroom and I'm the youngest by far. I mean, I'm barely out of college. I graduated in 2000. And they're all looking at me <laughs> like, what are we going to do to lease it up? And I'm like, in well, <laughs> let me give you some answers. And to me, the answers just stemmed from, OK, you know, as always, what would you do if you thought the property was yours? If you had to fill it up, what would you do? And some of this stuff is blocking and tackling. It's the playbook that we have in student housing right now. If they're not coming to you you go to them. And it was as simple as that. They just didn't have a playbook to mass distribute. The industry was young. And so rising to corporate was advantageous for them And for me, I wanted to work in Atlanta and, and, you know, I had a degree in public relations and I wanted to have a title in public relations and they indulged me, you know, I was in Atlanta. They gave me the card that said director of public relations. I got what I wanted and they're like, now go out to those properties and don't come back until they're full. I'm like, wait a minute. What is, what about the office in Atlanta? You know, here I am in Murray, Kentucky, and I'm not even going home for the weekends, but looking back on it, I want to say I am so blessed and lucky that the stars align. I had no idea what this ride was going to be. I was not looking for a career. It was one thing that led to another. And this is something that I talk about. I mean, I still think that there's runway, plenty of runway in this industry. But if you work hard, if you work hard, you say yes to the things that other people want to say no to. And you go out there and you make it happen opportunities present themselves. And that's been my path the whole way. I didn't necessarily hop around. I don't know that that was a winning strategy every time, you know, you have to kind of grow and then hopefully, you know, you get the promotion and then your salary gets bumped and such. But I was loyal. I stayed with place for the whole time and it was rapid building new construction off campus. Cecil is... I'd say a politician and just understands how these things work. He was a father of some of the first 501c3s in Georgia, Southern Polytechnic, which is now also Kennesaw State. And so while we were building off campus, we were also public private on campus, you yeah. know, and there's a lot, it's a different world, complete different world with the politics. So we were in Chattanooga, we were in Kennesaw, Clayton State, Bowie, Maryland, And i'm probably missing we were in north carolina so i was just surrounded by all of these things going on and i was a part of all of it but it was just what it was that was just the job and how it went being a part of history and the development of this industry i mean we didn't i didn't think of it like that it was just a job that i really liked i was challenged i was fulfilled and i would always say and still say it's different every day even in the same position these trends with kids come and go now, you know, when I started, we were barely emailing and social media did not exist. Google yeah. didn't exist. And so, you know, it's it's keeping up with all of that.
1: Yeah. I'm You know, talking about P3, there's something there I want to, a couple things I want to talk to you about, because I think the P3 wasn't just happening, you know, with place properties mm-hmm. on, on the student housing side, but also on the military side. Did you have any... Interconnectedness with with the military side.
0: Absolutely. So <laughs> Cecil is an entrepreneur and he's a visionary. He our deals that we got were not usually the easy ones to pull together. And I know developers, it's a tough job to get all the stars to align for a deal to be successful. But we were always, we were always looking to the future. What is coming up? And It did get to a point, you know, going down my path where we were doing private, we were doing public, privatized on campus. We even had, you know, a lot of people know about the partnership with Blue Vista. We raised over two hundred million in Fund One, and then, you know, later there was additional funds, and we went out. Just it just fueled us to go bigger and bigger and bigger. But around the time in early Blue Vista days, when we had that fund developed, and we had everything was set up to where we had our developer, you know, finding the sites and figuring out where we can place more properties. And then you had our investment committee, which back then it was like, we need to use this money that they've invested with us and make a profit. So build, 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 everything was yes, yes, yes. But around that time, Cecil, we would have these quarterly town halls and he would talk to us about the future. And the future back then is crazy is 2014 you're going to see enrollment start to decline and so we needed to diversify which made sense because we're used to this hustle and if the enrollment's going to decline we you know need to pivot what's going on and so i remember he had it was just this vision of billions of dollars worth of development by this certain year and we're our eyes are wide open like wow this is this is crazy it was workforce housing, it was senior housing, it was military housing. It was anywhere that we thought that there was a use of this by the bed product where maybe you wanted a certain lifestyle but you could only afford one fourth of it. And so it's the essentially co-living of today. And so we went down out of all the paths, out of all the visions of where we could essentially do this model, the one that really stuck was military. And so we hired a a colonel. He was a garrison commander at one of the bases in Georgia. And he knew about what was going on at that time was BRAC realignment. And so some bases were essentially shutting down and other bases were absorbing different groups, if you will, from the other bases. So they were growing, they were surging, and there wasn't enough housing in that footprint to accommodate all of these soldiers. And I don't know if you remember this. This is back when video started showing up of barrack conditions and um, oh my gosh, look at this one with mold and look at this and look at that. So
1: think about kind of what's going on in the world at that time. I mean, this is just post nine eleven, mm-hmm. and the military was the prod of this entire country. You're right. And absolutely. You see that, it's like, yeah, come on, we got to do better than this. And, and then
0: now on the six o'clock news, now, video is becoming more prevalent where you can see for yourself. It's like the modern day Twitter, if you will, of look, 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 you know, in real time. So we thought we were really onto something. And so we built in Colleen, Texas, El Paso, Texas, Fort Campbell in Clarksville, Tennessee, Prince George, Independence Place, Prince
1: George. You said Clarksville. So was there ever a situation where you ended up with both? a military project and a student housing project in the same market?
0: Not in the same market, but I can tell you that the struggle was similar. Like when you're kind of blazing a trail and you're the first, it was the same with military. It was, they're trying to understand, you know, you have all this traffic and they're like, this is the best deal ever. And you're like, but wait, that's for one bedroom, not four. And Mm. then, then what we were seeing is, and I'm speaking very generically and probably not educated, but simply stated, What we were seeing is in the past, if you would be deployed, you would come back and you wouldn't rapidly like the the, somebody wouldn't be rapidly deployed out. And then when after 9-11, we were just stuck in this cycle of being in this war overseas for so long that what was happening is, let's say, again, keep it simple, that they had a housing allowance for 500 bucks. They were allowed to live off base, off post. So we would set our rates at 4.99, thinking, you're welcome, come to me. But what had happened is they they were on multiple deployments back to back. They had a car note, they had a jet ski, maybe they had some children, maybe they had a wife, maybe not in that order, whatever it was, but they had a lot of expenses. And so where we thought our model perfectly aligned with their allowance, it did not align with the real world of their burden. And so, and then we would fill the property- and you, if you filled a property, you better watch out because you're going to get orders from 50% of your property being shipped out. And it was just constant, a cycle. So it didn't play out exactly like we had hoped. I think we did have a lot of success, but we learned a lot along the way. And then I think we saw eventually renovating some of those units, you know, four bedroom. If we wanted a backup plan as conventional Not a lot of conventional people like four bedrooms. And so we rethunk that model a little bit in some of our locations.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned Blue Vista earlier Mm -hmm. as an investor. And of course, Blue Vista ends up purchasing everything from Cecil and creating Peak. I'm assuming you were there for that.
0: Absolutely. It wasn't, again, from my perspective they already owned the properties primarily Mm -hmm. and so the way we described it is we put a bow around all of the people that were student housing oriented and they essentially launched or they allowed us to launch peak campus Mm -hmm. and back then i feel like it wasn't necessarily this we're going to launch our own operating platform we're going to be vertically integrated it was more Give us a chance. I mean, one of the reasons why the place and Blue Vista group, you know, they separated was because we were distracted. We were looking at military. We were looking at all these other things. And meanwhile, our student housing portfolio was suffering because a lot of our resources were being pulled elsewhere. So it makes yeah. sense on why everything played out the way it did. But we launched Peak. And I honestly felt because our performance was so poor the year before, because again, Our eyes were on very different prizes, different models around the nation. I just remember having this feeling that we must succeed or else. We had to fill those beds because if we didn't fill the beds, they could choose any other third-party operator. You know, it wasn't their ambition to have this company when they raised the fund. It was just something that kind of just came to be. And so we were on a mission to make sure that we leased up and that we were successful. We were very successful. Then I remember sitting around, not really sitting around, but you know, we're in the office and it's like, okay, we did it. We leased up. We've proven that we can do this. We can do this. And so we're going to stick around there. We're going to have our own company, not my company, but we're going to have peak and this is going to work. And then that's when it was like, well, wait a minute. What about when those funds mature? Where are the properties going to go? Well, they're going to sell them off. You know, that's what they do. That's how it works. And then it's It's like, well, what about my job? And one thing (laughs) led to another. And it was very clear that we wanted to diversify our portfolio, not the same way that we did in the place days, but we wanted third party. We wanted to have additional revenue coming in from third party. We had great talent. And ultimately, it was a win for everybody because it at least gave me peace of mind that even if they started to sell off fund one or whichever funds they had, that we still had properties to operate we still had jobs. So for the three years after that first year peak, we just went gung ho with third-party business development. I think we had maybe three or four different ownership entities, Blue Vista being one, some public private relationships in the beginning of peak. And if I remember correctly, by the time, at least for the next three years, by the end of that, we were up to like 21 different ownership entities. So we were passionate about diversifying the portfolio to make sure that we had stability. We had properties yeah. that needed to be run.
1: Yeah. Peak has been one of the best ones to do that. I, third party is, it's tough, especially when you're managing your own stuff because you feel like you're serving two masters and we all know that's not easy. That's one thing I'll I'll certainly you know tip my hat to both Peak and Blue Vista. Obviously, I wasn't there necessarily to see the sausage get made, but right. I felt like You guys did a fantastic job of kind of making that switch of being solely owner managed to doing third party. There were not a lot of folks that were doing it at that time.
0: Right. I think even third party, you do have many masters because whether or not they have one deal or a portfolio, their baby is the most important thing on their mind. And it makes sense. And there is the balance of being fair and equal and trying to make everybody happy, drive performance for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're owned or if you're third party. But the reality of things, even when you're in an ownership relationship, like where you own and operate, there's always multiple masters, whether you JV with somebody or if it's a foundation or university representative for public private, it really is just understanding the politics of. What's everybody's motivation? What's their definition of success? And ultimately, I say it all the time, leases solve everything. So I just knew that no matter who the masters were, communicate with them, let them know what the plan is, have a plan and just get the job done. But yes, it was interesting. You get very busy and you get on a lot of calls, the more owners you have, because again, they they all want an equal amount of attention, no yeah. matter how big or small their portfolio is.
1: So you've gone through this being on site to work in several different positions from a corporate standpoint of owner managed. Then there's this transition that, you know, some of the people that you were working with from an ownership standpoint are being removed. And now you've got, obviously, Blue Vista you're still very familiar with, but it's, you know, on a much more intimate level, I guess, at that point. And you're expanded to third party. And then you get an opportunity to do something completely different or not completely different, but to completely launch something new with CLS. I want to talk about that in a minute. But before we get there, I mean, during all this time, you've got life going on. What was that like? What was going on personally for you during that time that you have to juggle with at the same time?
0: That's not my night shift is that part. (laughs) (laughs) And honestly, I think in modern times, it's easier to figure out how to get it all done than it used to be. I was traveling with work. I was in student housing when I was a college student, when I was a young professional, when I met my husband, when we got married, before and with kids. So it's what I've always done. And the drill has been similar. And I think that goes back to say yes, even if you don't necessarily want to say yes to going to help a property, say yes to going to the conferences and trying to develop new business, say yes to getting in the plane and going to pitch for new third party, Mm -hmm. make it happen. And that's something that we can have a deep conversation about this, but it's, are you willing to sacrifice in a way to have it all, to have your career and also be at home? I mean, there's a lot of sacrifice to, my kids and my husband but luckily we have a village one of the reasons why i'm still in georgia i think i'm the only person in student housing that never moved i didn't go move to kentucky or i didn't go move to tennessee or any of these other places because that's where my job took me was fortunate with place being based in atlanta but i never moved and now even with campus life and style i am the only remote executive but i can go meet you anywhere and i do i'm always on the go but I need my village to make sure my mom and dad are 25 minutes away. My sister's four minutes away in her family. We have friends and family all around. So I don't know who's going to be raising my kids for the three weeks I'm traveling next week, but I'll figure it out. And it's likely going to be somebody that I'm either related to or close to it. So it's just this kind of village approach to survival and love yeah. my kids. I think that after peak For almost two years, I had my own consulting business where I was working directly with these owners. I had so many relationships where I could go and work with them directly, but they didn't need me as a full-time employee. They needed just a certain scope, if you will. So if they had distressed assets. And that to me was so fulfilling and so thrilling, being independent, being successful, (laughs) and people being happy with your performance and then hiring you to to do more work and then i couldn't keep books for squat but i knew how to generate invoices and i knew how to collect (laughs) so (laughs) it was awesome but that got to be a little too extreme that's where they don't want somebody that i employ to give them advice they're paying me for my advice and so i'm the one that has to go to all the projects i'm the ones that has to go to all the deals and as I'm meeting new owners and, and the industry is so small, I had so many people that called me or reached out on LinkedIn. Oh my gosh, I, I hear you're doing this. And my owner really needs help with that. Please, you know, meet him. So many people reaching out to me. It's just, it was awesome. And one day it was Ashley Lackey. She and I worked together at Peak and then she had been in the industry she reaches out to me and she's like, I have an owner and you need to meet him. He likes to bring in third parties to support his properties if they need help with marketing or leasing. And so that's when she introduced me to Elliot Tamir. And I started working on his properties that were, I call them distressed. They were behind or their priority for one reason or another. And he is, I would say, intense. He is extreme And the more you get to know him, the more you realize that that is not coming at you for student housing. That is just how he runs. And he is equally as passionate about student housing or his vision for the transformation, aka renovation, or taking care of his people. Like that intensity runs in all directions. That's what makes him so great. So I had him and one other of my clients both request that I go in-house And then I was also coming home and I was certain that my kids were an inch taller than they were the last time I saw them. (laughs) And so it was a a love-hate thing, like letting go of being independent and successful and the thrill of it was so hard. But at the same time, I knew it was the right thing to do to slow things down because in a blink of an eye, they're going to be gone. They're going to be doing all the things that, you know, and student housing that they do and they're going to get on with their lives. And so the timing wasn't quite right to just really go for it for longer with my own consulting business. So that plus, I really enjoyed working with Elliot. And then here's what happens. He flies me up to New York and I think, great. I did a good job with his properties. He's going to sign me up for more work. I'm going to get work in the fall. You know, yay, yay, yay. I'm going to have another invoice to create. Love that. And instead he tells me, we don't want to do third party anymore. We have a vision, we have expectations. They were up to about 15 deals. So they had the bulk that they needed. Yeah. He's like, I'm launching my own operating platform. It's top secret, but I'd <laughs> like for you to consider to come in house with us and for you to meet these people that I've pulled together. And so that was exciting. I was in on a secret and it you know could be more business. I don't know. So. I fly to Texas and I remember meeting at a hotel and I didn't know what I was walking into, but the beautiful thing is like, there's no stress because if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. I still had my consulting business. It's great. So I walk in the room and I start meeting with everyone and you have Jim Shoulders, you have Dan Shopey, Joseph Hughes, and a few others, which in my opinion were headliners of student housing. And they had come from American Campus. And that was great and all, but this is just one of the reasons why I absolutely love where I am. I love working with Jim is, you know, that feeling when you have a conversation with somebody in student housing and you're like, oh, you speak my language. Like you've walked a day in my shoes. And then it's like you could go on and talk shop forever. Exactly. (laughs) All of those people had walked a day in the shoes. They had done student housing. Jim, I always crack the joke that I thought I invented student housing. It turns out Jim was doing it for 10 years before me. So when you have an understanding in that room that you understand the real world, you've lived to see some things, you know the pros and cons of certain things. It is just so refreshing that it's this language that you share that makes you so efficient in working together. So fortunately they liked me enough to bring me on and it just It was exciting. It was exciting enough that I was willing to close my books and go in-house. And then looking back, I don't regret it. It was a great decision. And that was the beginning. I was the marketing and leasing piece of Campus Life and Style. And then we launched in January. They had three different third-party owners over their portfolio and I remember I used to go to Texas and they'd have these charts of we're going to take them down two at a time, two properties at a time this day and then that day and then this week and that week. And then nobody, none of the third party operators like that idea, either we're going to run them or we're not. And so instead, I think it was maybe January 3rd or 4th, someday like that. They said, no, if you want them, take them. So we took down 15 properties in one day. And we did a really good job with it. And that was the beginning. That was the first day of campus life and style.
1: Yeah, I, I kind of see that from both ends. But, yeah, you know, you're launching something new. Uh, this group's been a partner for however many years from a management standpoint. I don't know. It's a tough situation, I guess.
0: Yes, I I'm sure with anything, there's reasons why behind the scenes. Its impact to us was like a slow and steady kind of taking on these deals to all right, brace yourself, buckle up, let's do this. <laughs> we're yeah. taking all 15 on. And it, it worked out really well. I mean, we were fortunate enough that we weren't kind of building out everything as we were operating. We had the luxury to have, I don't know if it was a year, or six months, but Jim and that whole team were building out our infrastructure prior to taking everything on. And I think some people in opportunistic situations are building as they're also working and existing yeah. and operating. And that's, that's a heavy load.
1: Well, at least Jim had the uh, history of the ACC GMH acquisition. Absolutely. To, to fall on to Absolutely. know what that was like to take on so many properties in basically a single day. So, you know, that brings us up to current time. I mean, tell us what's happening at CLS these days. You guys are now, you know, doing a lot of third party yourself. We are. What's happening there?
0: Everything. You know, some of it is nostalgic, growing up with place and the evolution and just growth. It is so rewarding to start with something small and, and strategically plan and grow and be successful that your plan is working. And we did launch third party. We were first owner operator and Vesper Holdings out of New York is our real estate entity. They're the ones that acquire. We don't develop, not yet, maybe one day. And we weren't growing as fast as our ambitions, you know, as we wanted to. And we have some really good people on our team. And you know how it goes. We need to provide opportunities for them to grow and be fulfilled and pursue their career path. And so we did not want to lose, I feel like, some of our core people, core to the culture. And we wanted to just create opportunity. And so we talked to Elliot and Isaac, his partner at Vesper Holdings, that this is what we want to do. I know this sounds crazy, but we need to be allowed to treat all properties equally. Mm-hmm. And we need them to know that we do have Properties that we own, but what we'll do instead of treating one with preference over the other, and this is our mantra and we live by it, is we want to treat all of them the same, all of them as if we own them. And we want to focus on real estate value, value generation for all of your properties. So when we come to you, with maybe something that's out of budget or maybe something that's a unique situation, we're not just throwing it at you because we didn't think about it. We've already thought through its impact, the value of your real estate, and this is why we're approaching you with it, whether it's good or bad. That was the start of third party. Now, compared to back at peak, we were on airplanes, we were going in all different directions, trying to get in front of people for business development. And we launched third party in November, 2019. I say it like (laughs) that because if you're following me, COVID starts getting, like it starts really showing up in December of that year. And then the whole world shuts down, but we still picked up 10 deals that year. And not because of COVID, it was just lifting them with just consistent operations and consistent execution on plans. We did really well. And so from there, we continued on this path where we had a great case study, a great track record, and we just started the hustle. We're going to conferences. We're letting people know that we are open for third-party business. We did tell people before that we were not. We were only doing operating owned assets. So that brings us to today. We're in growth mode. We're staffed for growth mode. It's a different burden than just being consistent, stabilized, and operating these same assets. And while we're always looking to acquire different deals, always looking for more third party, we're doing, I think, what what we should be doing right now. And there's a lot of headlines out there. And we're really trying to strategically modernize our platforms. AI is a hot buzzword. Where can we use it? What can be done? We've partnered with Meet a Lease. We have other conversations going on with other vendors that stack with Meet a Lease. So it's not, that's just from my world with marketing and leasing. It's not just that Artificial intelligent agent to answer the simple questions, we're trying to push her farther. Where can she take us? And that's what I'm focused on in my department, but we're doing that across all departments. How does it affect facilities? How does it affect accounting and collections and all these other things? So we're trying to modernize ourselves. And then a lot of people for years, this isn't new, but optimizing revenue. And we have a program called RevOps that we're developing, it's proprietary. And we're building our own program just because we feel that there's other revenue management systems out there that don't fit exactly what we want to do to maximize revenue. So that's something that is being developed internally right now. So so we'll
1: get get named in a lawsuit when somebody.
0: (laughs) I know, right? No, we're no, we're going to do it our way. It's okay. Yeah, but that's, we're modernizing platforms where we see, everybody's talking about this at conferences, centralization and how do you feel about it? And and I think there's a lot of us that feel the same way is I can appreciate adopting some of these ideas that make sense, but we really push on hospitality, like not even customer service, hospitality, yeah. anticipating needs, not just serving needs, two needs or four needs. So I need people there. I mean, every it's one thing if we're talking about marketing and leasing, but what about the 500 kids that are living with you? How yeah. do you cater to them? And, and so we are adopting some things to be more efficient. I think that's what centralization, leveraging AI in a lot of the bottom line is. Let's be more efficient, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to overtake the property and now only one person is needed to run the property. We all know that's not going to happen. We need to maintain them. We need to serve. There's just this human element to what we do that's never going to go away. So we're, we're trying to find the balance.
1: Yeah. I had a conversation this morning with with someone on, on AI and, and, you know, how that can make things more efficient for us. And uh, that's a perfect kind of transition as we're talking about the future to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, what are some of the biggest challenges you think are facing the industry over the next, call it five years, 10 years?
0: I don't know that what I have to say is novel. I I go to interface and all the major conferences and I feel like we all share conversations. And then by the end, the big people on stage are saying the same things. You know, remember, I I thought that enrollment was going to decline in 2014. That's what Cecil Mm -hmm. said. And, you know, I didn't know what the future held at that point in time. It's like, let's have a, a wild great ride until then. And there's just so much that has happened. If COVID didn't happen, It was a nice, clean, you could see the domestic population is shrinking, but the internationals are coming in. And then, you know, when Trump is president, now the internationals can't get in. The visa situation is complicated. And then COVID, we're shutting down borders. Countries are shutting down. And then now look at us. It's like my reward after over 20 years is this post-COVID golden little enrollment boom where we have some people that held back. So it's enrollment plus whatever percent it ended up being. And that's beautiful. And we, you know, again, talking at the conferences, well, what are we going to do with rental rate growth for year two of this great opportunity? So so we're going to ride that ride, but it's not going to last forever because I think that They say after 9-11, people didn't have families as large as they did. I mean, the, the population of people going to college is going to shrink for us. And we need to, I hope and pray that we can backfill with international students. I've seen we're still not at full speed with the Chinese students. They're still not at the numbers that we saw before COVID. But then now we're seeing more Indian students, students from India but they're different, they have different sensitivities and some you know, have more disposable income than the other. So I'm hopeful that we can get past this glorious COVID enrollment surge and still survive with the enrollment that we have. And then I think we're gonna continue to see what is happening already, we've already seen it. On any given campus, you have core that's thriving and then you have some of them that are not core, convert back to multifamily or convert to multifamily, that's one thing. And then we're seeing that there's the haves and the have-nots with colleges. We see some colleges, the sun is shining, you know, University of Kentucky in that freshman class, you know, beautiful. And then you have Carrollton, Georgia, University of West Georgia, which they're just not seizing whatever opportunity. I don't know if it's leadership. I, I honestly think it's still because... SATs and, and such aren't the way they were pre-covid. So students have the ability to go somewhere else to school where maybe that's where they would have ended up. But I do worry about tertiary and second tier university markets because I think some will make it and I worry if all are going to make it cuz so far it yeah. doesn't. Some seem like they're thriving and they've got it going on and they have a plan. And they're recruiting and filling and such. And then others, it's just some pretty sharp declines in enrollment. And you wonder what's going to come of that.
1: Yeah. Not everybody's been able to enjoy the boom that's been happening over the past two cycles because, you know, a lot of the tier three, tier two schools have dropped in enrollment. And so those properties are, are obviously hurting. But you're totally right about we've got to lean on international students to make up that gap. And I think there's a lot of things from you know, obviously a political standpoint that's going to play into that. I think a lot of it has to do with, if you look over the past two years at which countries have grown with receiving international students, it's, now I can't remember the name of the country. It's, it's not Chile, but it's, a, it's another South American country and it has nothing to do with their politics it mm-hmm. didn't close down during covid and they're one of the cheapest and on average here i think annually you're talking about for an international student close to $30,000 a year for there it was $7,000 wow. so i think there's a big affordability portion to that as well and and you're right it is the administration and the leadership of those universities both at the system level as well as at those individual institutions i don't know if you saw and I think the world of this uh, this particular university president, but West Virginia University just made an announcement that they're planning on losing 5,000 more students wow. over the next um, 10 years. You look at that and then I see other universities that are switching some things up and they're being very tactical and enrollment's expected to really boost. So
0: it is. I mean, that's the thing is I feel like, and I hope, university, administration, they have a strategy. We need them to be successful so that we have students to serve. And I'm seeing in like the Midwest, in addition to the way that the population is out there and the demand shrinking, some of those colleges and universities are very agricultural. And I don't know that that is in vogue with everybody. And so are the universities even like shedding obsolete programs and keeping up with modern times. I mean, look at all the opportunities for millennials and Gen Z to have jobs that didn't even exist. And it's going to obviously continue. So I'm pro keep up with the times, seize your opportunity as a, a university. I do think that we all are relieved to see that even though there's opportunities to study online, that there still is an element to classroom education. There's the experience of the four years of growing up and practicing being independent get yourself to class on time to me there's just so much more to it than just your education in your college years and i do think that that's something that won't go away and it's very american which school did you go to and let's you know who's our rival and and such so i do think that the core colleges the flagship colleges if they want to have stable enrollment, all they have to do is open the gates a little wider. They usually don't, you know, their acceptance rates are such that if they need to open their gates a little wider, they can control. But then you get into these other schools again, either it's certain flagship, usually second tier, third tier, man, look at their acceptance rates. If they're already at like 95%, what are they going to do? If you can't, Open the doors any wider. Like your doors are almost completely open. So,
1: yeah. Just this week, I posted something to LinkedIn that came up in the Chronicle uh, for North Carolina and South Carolina residents. Duke University probably one of the most expensive <laughs> universities. If your family income is or household income is less than $150,000, it's tuition free. Yeah, of course, you got to get accepted.
0: Right. Uh, And that's not a hard school to get into. So I read that and I'm like, that is a really awesome headline. But if you understand the dynamics of the university, that kind of adds up to a bunch of nothing because you've got to get into the school. (laughs) So good luck.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. I don't know if that's a growth strategy or if that's more of a play on um, wanting to boost their endowment. I'm not sure. But right. So the biggest part of our audience are folks that are on site. Maybe they've been in a on site or general manager position for three, five, six, seven years. They probably went into it, you know, in college, just like you and I did. And it's been something that kind of, they like, but they, you know, they're just really coming to the realization of, okay, is this going to be my career? Do I want to continue to grow my career in this industry? For those that are, that are thinking about that, what kind of advice do you have for them?
0: You know, I was talking to Jim shoulders about this and I know my path and I know my strategy was just keep working hard. And I also along the way stuck with it. And I had opportunities to go into ops. I remember even like, you know, why are you being so stubborn? Why won't you just consider this? I'm like, no, no, no. Marketing and leasing is my passion. I'm sticking with it. But I think that Jim and Dan Shopey, Gary Dancy, they all are more, they really like have the larger bulk of our employees through the operations. And we agree that this is a niche business. It's almost like you're specializing. And Mm -hmm. if you stick with it, there's absolutely a career path. I was comfortable not knowing what the next step was in front of me because it didn't really exist. But I was growing up and things kept evolving. I wasn't doing the same things every day. The portfolio was getting bigger. We were growing the company. So systematically, I was able to rise. But if, even if you can't see the next rung in front of you or you don't know the timing of the next rung, you know, I'm assistant manager. I want to be a general manager. I want to grow up to be an area manager. And then I want to grow up to be a regional director. There is absolutely a path. And if you stick with it, and you're good at it, you're going to be a valuable resource. There are not enough resources in our industry. So
1: I, I have to ask you, because <laughs> on the consulting side, I'm always at a site, at least a couple times a month. And I'll come across someone who's been in that leasing manager position. And we get into this discussion and they're immediately, oh, I want to travel and help other properties who are struggling. And don't get me wrong, there's a complete need for that. I'm just wondering, what's your thought? Because you did come up through that marketing path. Is it the best advice to, hey, double down on that? And yeah, that should be your next position. Or is it, hey, take whatever opportunities in front of you, try to become a GM, get the well-roundedness of what all property management has to offer. What's...
0: I, I'm very fortunate. For yes, I'm very fortunate that I was stubborn enough to stick to my path, but there's only one of my jobs <laughs> at, at this position and there's many others that lead up to it. And even though it's kind of like going back to the very first day at Place, they put public relations on my business card and then they said, now go back to the properties and lease them up. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so even though i've always been in marketing and leasing just growing up with a growing company you touch so many other things from Mm -hmm. furniture install thank god i didn't hurt myself but i whatever i can do to help make sure this opens on time grab a tool make it happen or whatever but if you are well-rounded even if it's just what if you don't try to figure out your whole life today what if you have an end goal and you look at it at one-year increments? And what would you do for a year? Would you go into ops, and then now you know you're you're fully educated? You've done the cycle of one year, and now you know some things. Maybe you're like, "Get me out of here! Get me back to the marketing and leasing department or the training department or wherever." But that knowledge is invaluable to the perspective that it gives you. It makes you better no matter what job you have, absolutely better and more valuable because you have perspective. So I would say that it's one thing to be passionate, marketing, leasing, training, accounting, whatever it is. It's one thing to be passionate. But if you want to be successful, I think that your path is going to move faster and you're going to be the one that gets those limited jobs if you're well-rounded. I would completely suggest considering different parts of the industry, different parts of operations just for your platform for the future.
1: Yeah. So speaking of the future, any plans for yourself or or CLS over the next 12 months you want to share with us?
0: Yeah, it's been said already. We are in growth mode. And so it is our goal to continue to acquire, continue to grow third party We're modernizing our platforms. We have a lot of intensive, not even upgrades, but just development internally, whether it's RevOps for revenue management, or it's us trying to understand what's the best blend of modern vendors, prop tech, AI. I'm just dropping all the buzzwords. But what's the best blend for us? Because again, it's sort of like that, that Duke headline, you read all these headlines in student housing business and it makes you scratch your head and then somebody comes at you and should we be centralized? And should we be doing this? And I think that everybody has to figure out for themselves what's the best strategy for their business? What is it that you hang your hat on? And ours, like I said, happens to be hospitality. So maybe our blend of how we leverage these vendors is, is slightly different, but we're working through it. We don't wanna be bleeding edge, but we wanna be cutting edge. So that's something that we are giving a lot of attention to right now.
1: Great, great. Well, Jessica, thanks so much for the time that you spent and, and just kind of sharing your journey. And I know our audience is better for it. And I will make sure to put your LinkedIn information in the show notes so folks can reach out to you if they've got further questions. But thanks so much.
0: No problem. Thank you for having me. And this has been great. Thank you.
1: All right. Take care. Again, a big thanks to Jessica for sitting down and spending some time with me. I've had a couple of colleagues who have recently joined CLS, and I'm excited about what their future holds under you know Jessica's leadership, along with Jim Shoulders and, and Dan Shopey. It's really exciting times over there. Speaking of exciting times, it's almost move out day, which means turn is here. So those of you who have started listening to this podcast over the past year, you may not be aware, but we don't really put out any content during August. And that's basically because that gives us the ability to plan out the second half of the year and... We will pre-record some content that will help you get a running start with the next academic cycle once September is here. So that's what's going to be going on with us during the month of August, but we still have a lot of things that are going on in July. We will not be doing a Shop Talk webinar in August, but we will be doing uh, one on July 13th. So if you are not on our invite list for Shop Talk and you want to join that so that you get the calendar invites each month, make sure you go to shoptalk.info and click on the Register for Monthly Meeting button that's on the homepage, and that will add you to our calendar invite list. All right, everyone, stay safe, and thank you so much for listening. If we've brought you any value in this podcast episode, I will hope you will pay me by sharing it with your colleagues as well as your network on LinkedIn. We appreciate that so much. Thanks, everyone. Take care.